Welcome to Smarter Impact, produced by Bravo Charlie with the support of Pro Bono Australia. I'm your host, Philip Bateman, and I'm excited to kick off our 2021 series with Dr. Catherine Brown. Greetings, Catherine. How are you today? Hi, Philip. Very well, thank you. If um, you'll give me a minute to talk about you in the third person for our viewers, Mm -hmm. Uh, Catherine is a lawyer by training. Last year, you received the Order of uh, Australia Medal for your service to the community through charitable organisations. The year before that, in 2009, completing your PhD thesis regarding philanthropic foundations and innovation at Swinburne. Mm -hmm. Um, Great school. I've been there myself. (laughs) Uh, Since 2011, you've been the CEO of the largest public community foundation in Australia, the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation based in Melbourne. And also uh, in 2009, you joined the 19, you joined the Social Impact Investment Task Force of the Department of Premier and Cabinet, made up of four other industry leaders, one of whom Sally McCutcheon, who I interviewed two episodes ago for those of you interested in joining the dots. I was wondering, what do you love about your work? Um, one thing I might just add there um, is I'm also Deputy Chair of the Australian Environmental Grantmakers um, Network. So yeah. that's quite a... Um, area of great interest for the foundation and myself personally. So just add that in. Um, So what do I enjoy? In a sense, um, a foundation like ours, we we basically need to know what the community needs at any time, you know, what the big issues are of the day. And then we have to find people who can solve them. Mm -hmm. And then we invest in them and their organisations and we get to see the results and perhaps invest in scaling up. Um, so I think it's the opportunity to change ideas into reality and to make a difference. Mm. So what I'm hearing is you're, you're this mechanism, like a lens for what's going on and then finding the people who are doing it and amplifying their work. Yeah, and you know, believing in them. And sometimes a very small grant from us mm. will just be um, the tick of approval, which then brings in other funders, including government. Mm. And I find that really quite exciting. Yeah, that takes me back. Alan Schwartz, my last interviewer, was interviewee was talking about um, approaching government with this idea of saying, look, we're going to do this. And if it works, we want you to do this and using that as a mechanism by way of basically opening doors to start projects. So do you find that is the case? Yes, and I think also um, there's an opportunity now uh, to not just get government funding but maybe through social enterprise or impact investing to scale up in other ways as well. So there's sort of many types of scaling and um, bringing in government is one, uh, but I don't think we should replace government. I think we should be sort of looking ahead and sort of testing ideas and demonstrating what's possible Um so that it's de-risked for government. Mm. A minister once said that to me. He said, Catherine, the foundation and philanthropy, you know, you de-risk things for government. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And by the numbers, you're giving away several million dollars a year, I believe. Um, yeah, about 12.5 million yeah. um, this year. And so, How do you generate that money again? Like, how does it come in? So, so we're a community foundation, which basically means we have an endowment mm-hmm. made up of bequests and donations from people, many people over many years, mm. um, some very large bequests from, from two particular people, uh, Arthur Martin and also Eldon Foot, the largest bequests, but also many others mm. over many years. And our first bequest was actually by, from Sir John Swanson, mm. who set up the foundation in the beginning. Yeah. So that was Hence rather lovely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's the basically it's um, invested and then the income is used for grants. Mm. 
Could you share one of the hardest moments you've experienced? In at the foundation or yeah. hardest? <laughs> um Hardest probably is really in relation to impact investment. So when you're a foundation and people come on the board, Mm. they think about granting and they might also think about developing the fund. The leap to move from granting here and investing the corpus there and to actually think that the investments could have a social and environmental impact, mm. not just as responsible investment, which we, we also have a responsible investment policy, but that you actually consciously think about the social or envir- environmental impact and then the financial return. You know, that's quite a leap for the investment committee and the board. And so it's taken like really five years to slowly, slowly develop our program and we still haven't fully expended the allocation we've got so we're looking for for more opportunities but it's a very educational role and so I guess the hardest times are just when you have to bring a particular proposal back for the third time with more information because it just even though it's not a large amount of money in the scheme of things in the investment committee it's something new Mm. it's a quantum change Mm. And it's it's taken, um, you know, just you just have to pay, learn, learn patience and take it step by step, and then eventually you you bring everyone along. Beautiful. I was going to ask, what did you take out of that? But it sounds like that progress, small steps, <laughs> yes. taking everybody along. Um, do you find you're leading from the front, or are you looking to peers and the industry and being like, oh, how did they do it? How do we do it? Or is everybody going at the same speed? Um, in in some areas we're leading from the front, and I, I mean I kind of see that as our role too. Mm. I mean I think philanthropy should be looking forward. Mm. Um, now and then we've learned, so uh, we've learned say from the US, uh, the Skoll Foundation particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, long story about how I met some of them, but um, they actually did come out in 2014 Mm. and did a really great presentation for the sector and spoke to some of the board and helped us sort of get going in our impact investment where they were further along than we are. Mm. So internationally, there'd be many foundations ahead of us, but in Australia, there's a small group of us all working together Mm. to move forward. But then in other areas, um, so like climate and health, for example, or food security in an urban setting, mm-hmm. um, or even affordable housing, in yeah. Australia we would be leaders mm. and we've sort of taken risks. Yeah, mm. when you say taken risks. We've tried, we've either funded things were entirely um, never been funded in Australia before, mm-hmm. or we've tried to demonstrate um, something completely different. So if I think of the affordable housing challenge, mm. um, that was the idea that if we put a grant of a million dollars on the table, what what would that um, mm. bring? You know, And the, our first idea was to engage local government because local government hadn't really thought about how could they use their own land for affordable housing. Oh. And so it's been really transformative to think, um, 
you know that now the city of Darabin, who was the um, who had the site that we we selected, mm. um, that now they actually have a project happening in in Preston that that will build affordable housing, and it's really engaged a lot of local governments. Mm. So just to try and think, what's the solution, and where else can we find land for affordable housing, mm. and then use money to leverage other support has been really exciting. But you start from ground zero; you're not sure if it's going to work. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, well, it, this is the first moment where I've realised I've always been looking at land in Melbourne and our urban sprawl, and wondering, well, where's all the land to do this? And it's like it's with the governments. That's where the it, and it's it's with Vic Roads and it's with churches and large mm. not for profits that might have spare land. You yeah. know, it's it's not only commercial land, so mm. it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and then. I- takes me to what I had. I believe homelessness and affordable housing are two areas of focus for you. They're obviously deep community issues. One thing that pleasantly surprised me about the COVID crisis is the support for homelessness. Mm -hmm. And by the Victorian government, that relatively overnight, we seem to house a lot of vulnerable people. And I was wondering what's stopping us continuing that? Um, We shouldn't stop. I mean, it's just demonstrated what can be done. Mm. and we really encourage that to continue. And the the big housing build, which the Victorian government announced, that is a that is a big response mm. to the affordable housing crisis. Um, but I mean, it's so clear the more you work in this area that if you don't have a stable home, it's impossible to deal with your physical and mental health problems and to get a job or get education underway. I mean, mm. it's just so unstable. Um, so yeah, that, that whole idea of having a home and a place to, a base from which to live your life. Yeah. It's critical. Yeah. And I'm really on a personal level pleased to see the, I, the adoption of the idea that drug and alcohol usage is a societal problem mm. rather than a criminal one. Mm. And I think that ties into the secure base of a home because when they're seen as the same thing, then we can be like, okay, people need help. That's- yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of other, um, a lot of other issues where if you have a stable home, you can start to deal with mm, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we, we try and fund things which are, are social innovations in themselves. So if if I think about um, Osnham House, which was a project that Vincent Care came to us with, um, and quite often we'll talk to people very early. We go in actually often as the first funder in this area. Yeah. And if... Their idea was to basically demolish Osnham House, which was a very institutional, depressing place for um, homeless men with, uh, you know, drug and alcohol issues, mm. um, and and rebuild very attractive housing at different levels. So people who needed intense support, medium and then longer term, and to also have women as well as men. Mm. So it's a it's really the most mag- most magnificent project. And when mm. when that was launched um you know you can actually see it now opposite the children's hospital that just nailed what they wanted to do yeah it's such valued housing they've got services co-located and it's really sustainably designed so for me because i'm always trying to have the sustainability element in there as well um it's yeah it was just fantastic Hmm. what other innovations are you excited about that you participated in 
<laughs> many, but yeah. <laughs> um, First one there is one. another project that's just mm. starting, which we funded Launch Housing, which mm-hmm. is women's and, and children, mm. women and families project in Dandenong. Yeah. There, and it's really incredibly well designed. Mm. So, yeah, look, there's, there's really a lot. Mm. There's also one in the Nightingale Village where um, we funded um, Housing Choices Australia to actually um, own some of the some of the apartments in that development. Mm. So there's actually affordable housing alongside other private rental, um, and that's uh, that. You know, that's not built yet, but that's mm. that's a great model as well. Yeah. Mm. Hearing you talk, and especially with the people I interview, one thing that really strikes me is how much wonderful work the community and the business people are doing in Australia. And uh, I'm wondering what your message would be to people out there who read the news and kind of have this dire kind of take on the fact that the world, you know, the sky is falling. I, yeah, there is so much amazing stuff happening in Australia in so many areas. I might even talk about another area in a moment. Um, The news just shows bad stories normally, you know, sad, sad and, you know, news generating anxiety. Yeah. But um we have a lot to celebrate. I mean, we we are just so fortunate in Australia that we have Medicare for a start. We are so fortunate that we have a strong charitable sector. You know, it's incredible that we have such a wonderful education system. Mm. It you know, it's it's such a um egalitarian um, society and it's got that nice balance. I guess I suppose why I like social enterprise. It's kind of this nice balance between a strong safety net, but but still that opportunity for innovation and entrepreneurship if you want to go down that path. Mm. You know, and I I kind of think that's really what Australia's about. And you know, we have endless talent. Really, mm. I mean, you can see it even in how we're dealing with COVID and and. Um, one thing we did fund in that area was um, the um, the Alfred Hospital to build on some research they'd already started, not related to COVID but related to other infections, to look at the best possible treatment for COVID for very um, vulnerable groups, so older people in, in residential care mm. and also pe- people who with immunocompromised systems. And that, that's been exciting and mm. they've developed, you know, they've come up with some recommendation and shared them nationally and internationally. Mm. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I think I could do a weekly program basically mm. on all the great people in Australia yeah. <laughs> tackling all the tough stuff. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the good news. It's, um, <laughs> it's necessary. Uh, in 2010, you released your book, Great Foundations, 360-degree mm. guide to building more resilient and effective not-for-profit organisations. It talks to key areas, such as sometimes the back office should be front of mind, why slick marketing is not enough without solid program delivery, what folks need to know legally, uh, why folks need to know legally what is under the hood of a not-for-profit engine, why thoughtful planning and active networks are critical to the survival of a not-for-profit. Looking back on it, what did you include or what would you add now with another decade's experience? It's really interesting, actually. Um, Most of it, I think, you know, would still stand. I think probably what I'd really, I think I touched on it, but adaptability, I think, is probably the thing I'd um, be really thinking about now, having gone mm. through the COVID experiences. Um, what does that mean on the ground, adaptability? That means 
being an organisation that is able to stay true to your mission and still deliver your services or achieve your goals in a in a different environment. And for example, um, some of the organisations like Justice Connect or the Ask Izzy service at Info Exchange Run. Um, streets collaboration with other social enterprises around food. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's more. <laughs> you know, they were able to use digital tools mm-hmm. and deliver, you know, scale up their services so brilliantly to meet demand. It, mm-hmm. it was really inspiring. Mm-hmm. So I think that that sort of whole organizational resilience adaptability could be another chapter now mm-hmm. yeah um yeah hmm. great and in relation to you do a leading of the oldest charitable trust in australia what are the questions you struggle with on a day-to-day basis hmm. well i mean you mentioned the strong back office that i mentioned hmm. there i often say well sometimes say that you know you need a strong back office if you're going to sort of trampoline into innovation and mm. and you know funding interesting work mm. so you know you need really good due diligence and you need to understand the legal sort of framework that we're operating in in Australia and you need um to know the areas mm. um so i mean the things we've done is deepen our knowledge of the areas we're funding in, having mm. program managers actually work on in each area. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered that very well. Oh, it sounds perfect to me. Does it? Yeah. yeah. What, what do you struggle with on a day-to-day basis? And it sounds like having, you know, yeah. domain expertise in the areas you're putting money into and then also having a team that are adaptable to the, yeah. and, the nuance of technology um, and, and the pace of change. Yes, and also um, understanding sort of the accountability and the regulatory environment. Mm. So it's much more regulated mm. than people expect. I mean, I think we saw that with the bushfires uh, last year and the rural fire service um, case. Mm. You know, there is a whole body of um, law to try and protect yeah. funds so they are used for charitable purposes yeah, put, or DGR purposes. Yeah, I put money into the wrong Celeste Barber funds. <laughs> <laughs> Not the wrong one, but I mean. But I mean, in a way, yeah. it's a really interesting thing for everyone to learn about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, I put money into her New South Wales Royal Fire Service and then I started one for the Vic Fire Service and then shared it with some friends because I'm like, look, hey, all the money's going over there. Legislation says exactly. it's, a, it's a bucket and they can't give the bucket over here and we live here. Yeah. So um, it's a good idea to think about buckets and you know where the buckets can go and um you know what's the purpose of the different buckets and yeah it's 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 more complex than some that other must countries require astonishing I must say. if you're setting up something to know what buckets you need for what you're going to do in the future yeah well i, I think um yeah there's a, there's a whole um in australia mm. we 
you know, we go through a couple of processes. So if you want to have a tax-deductible foundation, you know, obviously you become a charity mm-hmm. and then we get charitable status. But you also have to apply to be a deductible gift recipient yeah. and get into one of the categories that is allowed or be specially listed. So mm-hmm. it's quite a process for a foundation um, there's public ancillary funds and pi- private ancillary funds, mm. which you would have heard of. They, they've got quite general purposes in terms of what they can grant to, but you have to grant to a DGR item one. Mm. So there are some limitations um, on acting quickly, and, and I think the government's actually looking at that at the moment at a federal yeah. level. So um be lovely to think we could get a little bit more. Mm. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Sort of effective. Mm. in that area and just to go back a little bit yeah. we did the day-to-day but if we push the horizon out to five years what questions are you what questions are keeping you occupied in relation to the trust or the foundation excuse me well i think climate change is really really sort of a focus mm. um you mentioned this was a particular lens of yours could you talk to that yeah so five years ago i i was is it, is it already five years i was very fortunate to go to a funders initiative alongside COP21. So there are about 100 foundations from all around the world. And excuse me, COP acronym alert, COP21. Oh, so that's where we where we signed the Paris Agreement. Oh, thank so you. So that's yeah. the UN Council of the Parties. Is right. the- yeah. <laughs> um, and that was just very eye-opening for me because we – not only met each other and who what each other were doing, but we were briefed every day by people who were presenting to COP21. And we had farmers, health people, health workers, indigenous groups, young people from all over the world mm. talking about what the impact of climate change already was on them. Mm. And we weren't really talking a lot about it here. You know, it just was starting, but there wasn't a lot of momentum. People, there'd been momentum, I guess, in people who knew for a long time, but mm. not so much now. Um, not not so much the general public. And I came back and said climate change is going to affect everything we do, you know, whether it's health or whether it's housing or whether it's food, you know, it's we need to think about having a lens over it so that we actually are thinking ahead and thinking, um, you know, what are the health impacts of climate change? How do we help, you know, reduce emissions, you know, what are the job opportunities? It's very broad. Yeah, it's a reflexivity of the integrated system that affects everything. It does affect everything. Falls. And but there are opportunities as well mm. in in jobs and so on. So um, you know, it's kind of inspiring. Mm. Um last year I had an opportunity to through the Smart Energy Council, one mm. of their forums, which we'd actually helped fund as part of the Clean Energy Powerhouse Initiative we, we had to uh, pose a few questions to the UK Minister um, for Green Jobs, pretty much. Yeah. And they just have a whole plan of what can happen and mm. um, really looking forward to us having the same plans. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, in that regard, through your time on the Social Impact Investing Task Force, what have you discovered that surprised you? I suppose from my point of view, I'm a little surprised that some of the things that we actually made grants to were really important in terms of later being able to create social impact bonds. Mm. So, you know, to help people demonstrate um, say the journey to social inclusion mm. with um, Sacred Heart Mission, or 
um, there was a staying together project as well. I mean, that's quite incredible because you mm. fund them on the you know on the basis of the social outcomes, yep. but then over time, with more and more evidence, because of the projects, they can actually begin to design a social impact bond. So that was really great, and I think that's an important mm. um, thing for us to learn in terms of. Um, well, I just it's just inspiring to think what's possible. You mm. look at what they've done in the UK with big society capital yeah. and um, and the Access Foundation mm. to support social enterprises and impact investing. And they've taken such a leap forward in ten years because of that. Yeah. You know, if if we could have that sort of thing, that'd be a quantum leap forward too. Yeah. I've been just blown away by looking at what the people are doing in the GSG and Michelle Giddens and the Bridges Foundation and things. Yes, yes. Michelle and Michelle Giddens and Rosemary Addis were the two people I interviewed at the start of the Smarter Impact ah, Series. So, yes, so we, we, I've, I've met Michelle and I know Rosemary well. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's really great. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, yeah. It is amazing. I'm sure in five years we'll, we'll see it more mm-hmm. as business as usual. Okay. One thing I would like to mention, the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, we're essentially a community foundation mm-hmm. and – so we're not set up by one, you know, hugely successful business person. Mm. Um, we're set up by a whole lot of people who, you know, are comfortable but are very altruistic. Mm. And um, I think in a way the media don't find us very sexy. I mean, it's not quite Bill Gates or, you know, Twiggy Forrest or whatever doing things. So, But I think there's a huge potential. Um, in Canada, the Governor-General there maybe five, ten years ago, ran a Smart and Caring Canada campaign to encourage mm. Canadians to give to their community foundation to get involved in philanthropy. Yeah. So I suppose I'd like to say that philanthropy is for everyone mm. at whatever level you can participate. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for watching. Thank and you, Philip. Yeah, if you enjoy this material, uh, please get it out there. Help us spread the message. There's wonderful people doing amazing work. (laughs) And the more we are aware of it, the more it will happen. Yeah, great. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Smarter Impact. I'm really pleased to bring you this information. It takes quite a lot of work on our end. We have proofreaders, video editors. There's a lot of audio work that goes into things. We've got caption editors. We do a lot of distribution work through LinkedIn and through YouTube. And I really appreciate that you take the time to listen to this material because I believe it's really meaningful to be having a better quality of discussion in the world. And that's the intention of me going out and speaking to these people and then spending all this time and money and effort with my team to bring that information to you. If you are enjoying it, please take some time, leave a nice comment, share this with some people. It really inspires us to get out there and do more of it in the world. And if you know somebody we should be talking to, let me know. I'll get in touch with them and bring you an interview. Thanks.